When did we sever the head? You might be picturing the guillotine of the French Revolution, but I'm speaking more metaphorically here. What I mean to ask is when did modern Western medicine decide that mental health was something altogether different than health pertaining to anywhere else in the body? And what does this mean for mental health policy? Today, the Mental Health Parity Act and the Mental Health Paradox. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins, and this is Arissa Watch. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, one in five adults have experienced a mental health issue. One in 10 young people have experienced a bout of major depression, and one in 25 Americans lives with a serious mental health disorder, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. The numbers with respect to addiction and other substance use disorders are perhaps even more alarming, and drug overdoses now cause more deaths per year than car accidents and guns. So mental illness is extremely prevalent in our society, but it's often associated with stigma and blame, issues I want to explore more in future episodes. What I want to talk about today is how our ways of thinking about mental illnesses have led to mental health treatments and even mental health policy being systematically cut off from the rest of healthcare. And as is usually the case, separate is not equal. It struck me as interesting that one area of medicine, neurology, more or less reattaches the mind to the body, which is where it belonged all along. Here to talk with me about this is Dr. Joshua Warwick, the head of neurology at the VA Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, an esteemed neurologist who just happens to also be my cousin. Hi, Joshua. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. So from your perspective, working as a neurologist for the VA, how do you see these two fields fitting together? And, you know, what does the overall picture look like um, from your perspective? So first, it's a pleasure talking to you. And of course, my views are not the VA official views. They're my own. So the issue is, um, how does neurology relate to psychiatry or a broader issue, mental health? And I think they're very closely related and integral, in fact. Uh, So for me as a physician over many years to really understand a patient and his neurologic problems, uh, I have to understand where that patient comes from, uh, what his emotional background is, what his social background is, uh, what his mental health background is. They really tie into each other fundamentally in the symptom presentation often and uh, very much, uh, you know, importantly. Well, that that really makes sense that, you know, you're treating the whole person. You don't just treat some aspect of them in in some sense, even though obviously you're a specialist and our, you know, medical system is set up um, to be to some extent a system of specialists. But um, so, um, you know, so how do you how do you feel um, like what what happens at the VA? Do you think it's it's well integrated um, psychiatry along with you know other um, aspects of medicine? What's your experience been? Sure. So let's take some examples. So I'm a neurologist. Uh, I work uh, as uh, chief of neurology in the Brooklyn VA Veterans Administration Hospital, which I'm very proud of. 
their model is really integrated as it is at every VA. So the colleagues next to me are the psychologists and the psychiatrists. So let's take a patient uh, with headache, right? So when did the headache begin? What are the factors? But let me address some of the psychosocial factors. So many of our patients have PTSD, uh, uh, depression. They've really been through some heavy trauma. I mean, you can only imagine combat veterans and so forth. Uh, and those uh, experiences and emotions really play a factor in how they experience headaches, the onset of headaches. If they've had head trauma and something like 80% of the combat veterans have traumatic brain injury, TBIs, it's really important. So if we don't address those other things, we're really not going to be able to um, uh, cure the problem. There's a whole area of uh, psychoneurology now, in fact. I'm sure there are Many researchers who are studying the biology of psychology, psychiatry, and neurology, even something as um, uh, uh, commonplace as for headaches or back pain or musculoskeletal pain. Uh, this is really fundamental. And because I really take a whole person view, a holistic view of the patient, this is really important. And often uh, when you're open to that as a provider, as a physician, you know, people talk to you and that sometimes helps too even if I'm not a psychiatrist. Yeah, that that is really interesting and I, you know, I I do think though that the VA model which is seems to me to be a pretty good model that works really well for a lot of people. Um it's it seems like it's unusual in our system. Yeah. Do you do you think Yeah. So um let, let me just jump in there. So uh, I'm really actually very, very, very proud of the Veterans Administration and how they approach it. They take a fully integrated whole human, whole patient view of all of our patients, all of our veterans. I kind of wish that was a a universal uh, principle. It is in many other health systems, but particularly so in the VA. So we work in collaboration with uh, all our uh, providers, mental health providers, psychiatrists, psychologists, the neurologists, the medical team. Uh, Let's say we see a patient who's having a a, a mental health issue. We can immediately access psychiatry and psychology. I mean, we can even take a patient by the hand and walk them right down. Uh, Pre-COVID, now it's more online and so forth, but right to mental health. Uh, even something as simple as the medical record system. The VA has one of the best electronic medical record systems in in the world. So someone can check into Honolulu, Hawaii VA. I'll have that report the same day or the next day. So they're all there in one place, the psychology, the medical records, which is really important, isn't it, when you think about it? Uh, Because so much of medical care is fragmented, especially in the civilian world. You know, uh, someone sees one specialist, they might not get a report at the other doctor's office. You can only imagine, et cetera, et cetera. In the veterans model, it's all there in one place. And I really think that's important, not just with mental health and neurology care, but just general medical care. You would want your doctors to have access to your records immediately and broadly. Yeah, I mean, that really does seem like um, something that's fundamental that's, again, I think starting to become part of, of all of medicine, hopefully, in, in the United States, but um, but we're certainly not there yet. And I think, you know, um, the fragmented nature, like you say, of, of medicine is is has been a real problem for anybody struggling with 
with medical issues. And I think particularly for people struggling with mental health issues. Um, and it really, you know, as the, I think the VA shows us, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Right. So let me add something else. Let me take, for example, homelessness. Uh, you know, this is a problem, not just in, in New York city, it's across the country, but especially, uh, in the veterans population, we have a number of uh, veterans at all times who are homeless. The VA actually has a homeless outreach program. It tries to arrange for, um, for homes places to stay uh, uh, for the veterans. It has a, a kind of an integrated work program where veterans can get back into the, the workforce. Um, I mean, it's just wonderful. So it not only provides medical care, but it understands that if we don't take care of the, the physical and social needs of our patient population, we're not going to be successful in the long run because it is, it's kind of the whole person approach, um, emotional, social, physical, and as a neurologist, you know, I see many of those patients and I always try to go beyond just my own, my own specialty, my own niche. I try to reach out to the other providers. If they need mental health, I'll try to expedite that. And I think most of the providers I work with kind of, they know the system is there and it provides for the veterans. So why not avail themselves? These guys and gals have certainly earned every bit of our respect and our care and uh, I think it's it's kind of like a new VA. It's not the way it was 30 years ago when I was a resident, and many veterans avoided the VA. Now, uh, I think it's a, a home for many, and uh, the more they integrate with or interact with the system, hopefully they'll have good experiences and, and positive medical outcomes. Uh, you know, I, I it just occurred to me um, to ask you about the question of stigma among veterans um, dealing with medical issues in general, I think, because, you know, veterans tend to be people who are very self-sufficient and tough, um, but especially with mental health issues, which again, I know you're a neurologist and, and not a, um, a psychiatrist, but, um, but, you know, do you think that this system helps sort of overcome um, some of the problems of stigma to some extent as well? You know, that, that's really, Elizabeth, a great question. In the first place, I think years ago, uh, even if you were a veteran, you carried a stigma. I mean, the guys who came back from Vietnam lived through that nightmare. Now, uh, the first thing is, as a society, uh, we really respect and, and honor and cherish our veterans. So that's the first thing. And society has come a very long way. Now, when it comes to mental illness, I think the VA has gone out of its way in encouraging veterans. If they have mental problems, it is not a stigma. It, it has to be brought to our attention. I'm sure there are many veterans who, who don't, uh, maybe especially the older veterans, but who don't bring that up. But we really encourage it. They're screening at almost every visit. Uh, we've been uh, encouraged you ask the veterans uh, about their mental health, their uh, suicidality, and so forth. I mean, we really have to go out of our way. And I think we have to be vigilant at all times. And there are support groups. So a lot of the guys and gals who come back from the service, you know, they're with other veterans in support groups. And they've been through the same experiences and understand it is not a stigma. I'm sure there is that burden. I'm sure it continues. But I know the VA is doing everything it can to destigmatize because we have to get the help to where it's needed and, and prevent suicide. There's still a lot of uh, suicide every day amongst our veteran population. 
So anything we can do, but it's ongoing, Elizabeth. It really is. And your point is so important that we work and encourage people to destigmatize mental health needs. Yeah. And of course, you know, the VA can't overcome all of societal stigma, but at least they're working hard not to set up additional stigma, you know, stigmatization of, of people and additional obstacles. And that's super important, I think, from a from a healthcare system. I, I I think so. And also my understanding is that the Department of Defense, the military, is also working within its ranks to destigmatize mental health issues. And, and as that uh, uh, comes to fruition, hopefully as they leave and are separated, discharged from the service, they'll be more willing to seek out the care that's there and which I tell all my veteran patients who I dearly care for and love, you know, you earn this. Let us help take care of you, you know. Well, I I really uh, this is this is a fascinating discussion, and um, I you know I really see um, a couple of of the VA and maybe um, to some extent Indian Health Services these public health models as as truly models of of what should be happening across the board and in healthcare, and I think. Um, Honestly, I think the um, COVID times have, have sort of pointed that out. Um, you know, I think the VA and, and other um, like Indian Health Services have done a really excellent job of, um, of treating um, COVID patients and also of getting people immunized really quickly. I, I, so, you know, um, my, of course, you know, my, I, you have my complete admiration, Joshua, for, for working, uh, you know, during these times, I know it must've been really difficult, but I think, you know, the VA hospitals have done an amazing, amazing job. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you just from the uh, COVID vaccination point of view, uh, every veteran I talk to is, and, and me too, I'm kind of amazed at how good and well, the VA rolled out its vaccinations. So now veterans can get their COVID vaccinations. Uh, I know there's still some vaccine hesitancy. I tell my veterans, for sure, we know COVID can kill you. So this vaccine is our hope. Please avail yourselves. Uh, and, and I think just in general, I know it's a big bureaucracy. There are always problems. Uh, but the VA actually does what it can to correct things. You know, it's kind of a dynamic. And I don't see that you know, in any other way, in other places, as robustly, that they really try to make things better and continuously improve our veteran experience uh, from mental health, uh, from all the medical specialties. But we work uh, together and collectively. So that's that's a good thing. That's 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 great to hear because, you know, the head is part of the body. Everything that we're experiencing is part of ourselves. And we really do have to learn to take a, a less myopic, I think, view of the treatment of people of all their uh, medical needs. Well, it's been great talking to you, Joshua. Um, thank you so much. I, I really can't thank you enough for taking time um, from your day to, to do this. And also thank you for, you know, being on the front lines of, of COVID, as, as they say. You're a, a warrior yourself. Well, th th thank you very much. It's certainly been... Uh... A long and, and rough year. So uh, better times ahead and, and we'll keep working at it, all of us. Thank you. So now on to the law and policy with respect to mental health treatment. 
It's been the case for a long time in this country that insurance companies and ERISA plans have treated mental illnesses much less favorably than other kinds of illnesses. Sometimes they've excluded coverage for mental health treatment altogether, and in other cases placed more restrictive limits on the number of days of treatment, imposed higher cost-sharing requirements, or put more onerous pre-authorization requirements on patients seeking mental health treatment. In an attempt to address this unequal treatment, Congress responded first in 1996 and then again in 2008 by passing the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. Among other things, this law prohibits plans and insurance companies from imposing different treatment limitations and higher cost-sharing obligations, but only if the insurance policy or plan covers mental health conditions in the first place. It wasn't until the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, came along in 2010 that health plans were first required to provide mental health coverage as part of essential health services. So here we are in more than a decade after these laws were passed, and it's fair to ask, how is this working? Has the gap been addressed? Here to discuss this with me is Lisa Cantor, one of the founding partners of my firm, Cantor & Cantor, and a leading expert on mental health parity laws as well as a leading advocate and attorney on behalf of those suffering from mental illnesses. Thank you for being here with me to discuss this important topic. My pleasure. So this is going to um, maybe be a, a, a question that will make you laugh, but I've got to ask it. <laughs> has, has parity been achieved and are mental health and addiction disorders now being treated the same as other medical conditions? Well, as you probably expected, the answer is no. Um, it's, it's good news that we have mental health parity laws, but we have a long way to go before mental illnesses are treated in parity with physical illnesses. Um, in California, we have a, we are doing a little better because we have a slightly stronger parity law that requires up until January 1, 21, required all men medically necessary treatment for nine severe mental illnesses, and now has been broadened to include all mental illnesses, which is fabulous. Um, on the federal side, which governs most people in this country, it's a balancing act. It's a balancing test. So if you're treating physical things a certain way, you have to treat mental things a certain way. But the problem is, as we all know, mental health is treated differently. I mean, we have different modalities. We have different ways we treat. And, you know, calling it equal or, or arguing for parity is nice, but it's not the same as saying you really should get whatever treatment you need to help you get better. And is that is that more what the new provisions in the California law aim to do? And, and do you have hope that, um, that the prospects are better for really achieving greater parity, if not complete parity, at least in California, under this new um, California law? Yeah, I, I do have some hope we're going to do better in California. I think it's fantastic to hear that every diagnosis, every mental health diagnosis has to be treated um, with parity. In other words, has to be offered the right kind of treatment. Um, I think that's going to go a long way. Um, but, you know, our fundamental problem is stigma. 
you know, if people still view mental illnesses as not real, as not being um, the same as a physical illness, um, it's very difficult to get the same um, intensity of treatment, attention to treatment, research about treatment, and sort of dedication to helping people with mental illnesses. I I totally agree. And I think that the insurance companies and the healthcare plans are sort of stepping into the gap that's left by by that stigma and and taking advantage of it to some extent to deny treatments. But I think I I do agree that I think, um, you know, the fundamental problems probably lie in society at large, in medicine at large, which, um, you know, tends to treat mental health disorders differently and, and conceptualize them different differently than other physical disorders. Um, although, um, you know, I hope that in the future that um, that will be less so. What do you, what do you think about that? Are, are those, are, do you, do you see those, um, those gaps as narrowing and, and the treatment coming together a little bit more? Um, you know, again, I think we're getting closer, but you are right. Um, insurance companies, if they, you know, they see a little bit of a of a sliver of uh, ability to deny, they drive a truck through it. And there's only so much legislation can do because you can't think of every way in which an insurance company can figure out how to get around it. Uh, and insurance companies, you know, frankly, can only do that because we tolerate it in our society because we. We don't believe that people with mental illness are as worthy of attention and treatment. And that's going to take a long time to change. Um, we see this so often, so glaringly with eating disorder patients, because a lot of these patients are young. They haven't really started their, their you know, they're either in college or high school. They haven't really gone out there and gotten jobs. And when they get good treatment, they turn out to be flourishing, contributing members of society who, you know, have families and children and good jobs and contribute. But when they don't, they end up in a revolving door of treatment. And, you know, it's, it's not good for any of us, uh, for our society, for their family, for them. Nobody would want to see that happen. Well, you know, I just have to say thank you to you and other people who are, you know, working with patients who are suffering from um, mental health um, disorders and addiction uh, and substance use disorders and trying to address these issues through through the law and more broadly in speaking out about this as as an advocate. I think it's really important. And, you know, I hope the future is a little bit different than the past um, with respect to these, uh, these mental health parity issues. Thank you, Lisa, for, for joining me. You're the busiest person I know. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day and um, talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. And thanks for bringing this to your listeners. I appreciate it. Access to coverage very much depends on what insurance companies think they can get away with. Because we have split off these illnesses from other types of illness, like dementia, epilepsy, or the like, and society has stigmatized people who suffer from mental illness and substance use disorders, insurance companies can more easily deny coverage 
without people like judges becoming outraged. Hopefully new and improved public health policies can help to address some of this inequity. But I think we also need to try to change our own thinking about these issues and stop splitting off our minds from our bodies. Today's episode was brought to you by Cantor and Cantor. Our producer is Emily Hopkins. Our composer and engineer is Andrew Payson. Special thanks to Dr. Joshua Warwick and to Lisa Cantor. New episodes of Arissa Watch will be available the first Friday of every month. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins. See you next time.